Like seriously, why why nobody talks about this as a Akira Kurosawa comedy? It, it's not <sighs> dramatic anything. It's it's like that's that's comedy. Don't buy it. It's simplifying it, the themes. God, God damn bad. No. It it's its own purpose. That that that's a hill I will die on, man. Welcome to the Flake Lab! Time. It goes so slowly, yet it is so scarce. Yet here we are at the lab. And hi, Henrik, how are you feeling today? Well, here, here we are. We are wasting the precious time that we have left. Yeah. <laughs> every, every second of making, the, making a film podcast, it's always a second lost on, on your life that you will never actually get back. Tonight the bits and bytes are all twisted and out of order. Some would call it a Microsoft Windows, but tonight we call it cancer. So I have a feeling we're gonna double down on all, all the wonderful cancer jokes that we have. We are a film podcast, after all, and film podcasters, so which means that we automatically are cancer scholars on a certain level. Uh-huh. Ain't that the truth? Time for some more movie entertainment tonight. A delightful evening upon us. This whole weekend, actually, I've been saying to my boyfriend things like, like, I'm gonna watch a movie about cancer, wanna join? It's been delightful. But he asks me, what kind of cancer? I'm just confused. I go like, well, uh, we have ovarian, gastrointestinal, ductal carcinoma. Which one do you like best? What's your experience with cancer, Henrik, apart from this podcast? Well, I, I've also a regular 4chan poster, so I, I can say that I have had cancer for quite some time now. <laughs> now, in all, all seriousness, uh, well, cancer is one of those major diseases in, in northern countries, in, in Finland, uh, world around. It's kind of a universal killer. I'm just pulling this out of, out of my sleeve, but I would guess, it's, it's a hesitant guess, but it's a guess that most of our listeners have had a relative who has faced a cancer or they have someone in in their close circle of friends, someone who they know who has had cancer. Yeah, also two of my grandfathers. Indeed, unfortunate. But uh, today we're going to just take a look from the movie world's perspective on cancer, thankfully. We have four movies for you tonight. We have Cries and Whispers, Wit, Tig, Ikiru, and uh, could I count properly? Is that all? Yeah, that's all. That, that's all. No, no no, more than four cancers to, tonight. We are kind of slacking here. Like back in the old days, we would have had like seven different cancers. <laughs> like a smorgasbord of cancer. And unfortunately, you know, this is one of those thematic episodes, so we are just stuck with, when it comes to cancer-wise, we are just stuck with this podcast. Uh, well, I guess this was bound to happen, this kind of episode. We like to delve into the dark, and this this is definitely quite dark. I, I don't know if, if cancer was bound to happen. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm super surprised that we landed in, in cancer cinema, but like looking back, 
back in the like what we have now done three years years of podcast. I I don't say that cancer was the looming effect in the horizon for for us and the podcast. <laughs> Personally, I guess it is a subject matter that I consciously try or unconsciously rather I try to avoid it. Do you find yourself avoiding subjects that involve cancer and maybe you're sick and you're trying to look for some solution online and you're hesitant because you might come across cancer and then <laughs> all bets are off and then you're in the cancer hole of internet and you can't get out. Not really, no. Don't have that experience. I'm not one of those persons who just don't look up illnesses on mm. the internet. Same now. Yeah. And like, of, of course, with, with my parents, they're kind of quite old already. So things like cancer is something that looms in the horizon. It's a ever-growing possibility that my my parents yeah. will get a cancer diagnosis, diagnosis. And also with my lifestyle, you know, cancer diagnosis is something that, you know, may very well loom in the horizon. But still, I mostly, I just don't really think about the situation. I'm like more like, you know... Sera, sera. What may, what maybe will be, will be. So no, for for me, I'm I'm not avoiding cancer cinema or you know cancer Google searches or anything like that. Well, I don't know how personal we wanna wanna get here, but yeah, uh, there might be also not because of my lifestyle, but because of uh, certain. Certain issues that I've had, maybe it will one day bring me some cancer. But I guess who who knows? I mean, everybody has some some you know weak weak spots where sometimes or someday the cancer might loom or not. There's always a possibility, you know. Yeah, these are always there, reminding us that <laughs> the human life is rather interesting. Where do you wanna? Pick it up from. I kind of don't have a blueprint today's episode. Today's episode altogether. I, I guess we kind of have to wash the warning out in in the early stages of the episode. But it is easily can become quite a mess. Like the, the growing idea here for tonight was to look at the the cinematic uh, depictions of cancer like how does does film approach the subject matter and the truth that we unfortunately run across pretty quickly was that well mostly cinema just kind of doesn't like the cancer cinema it's it is its own kind of dramatic subgenre there are a bunch of films where cancer shows up in some some capacity but to say that those films really are about cancer is perhaps Kind of dishonest, at least like if you would really wanna look up how how the disease itself is being depicted. Cancer in in cinema mostly, mostly, I, I would say in eighty percent of the cases, is something that is brought up at some point of the narrative. Then it uses as works as a kind of a motivational workhorse where it will provide easy motivation for the main character and, and the most important side characters. Mostly it's not touched upon, it's mostly it's not shown, but it's kind of like 
you know, during the first 15 minutes you hear about, somebody hears about that they have cancer, and then the whole whole rest of the film, it's about some other shit completely, and then perhaps, you know, cancer has a small cameo at the end of the film. <laughs> we tried, honest to God, we really did try to avoid that. We did try yeah. to pick our four films in, in a way that the cancer would be a major p- player in in the film itself. And even even with our best attempts, I would say we kind of did fucked it up. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we've tried. There were a lot of options to choose from, but we went with these at the end of the day to get as as varied package as we possibly could think of. I'm not a scholar of cancer cinema or anything, so we just picked them with our best effort. And here we are. As you said, they are not really that much about cancer. Maybe one of them is about cancer, the rest is kind of about something else. Would this mean then that even cinema is scared of cancer? In my opinion, yeah. Uh, another thing that most likely is, is at play here is the fact that cancer is kind of, like, obviously, this is something that, that we knew already beforehand, that cancer is kind of a, it's a difficult topic to approach, not necessarily because it's it's so dramatic and not necessarily because it's so scary, but because there kind of is there is like an X number of things that you truly can say about cancer that some other film wouldn't already had done. Yeah. Well, since we're talking about whether cinema is avoiding cancer consciously or unconsciously, perhaps the natural way to get to the talking points here regards to movies is is the film Wit. And I think this film taught me that cancer is boring, Henrik, for you as the victim and for everyone else around you. No one comes to visit you, and if they do, they do it because they feel it's some kind of obligation. And then the rest and the doctors and nurses, they hang around to uh, study it out of interest or because they have to do their job. And here we have an insidious form of breast cancer, undetectable under early stage and uh, we also keep breaking the fourth wall. In a way, I understand why this is being done. The movie is adapted from a play after all. And then the communicating the feelings of the lady may not be as easy without it. But they sure could have tried another road instead. Because that's what movies are for me. It's it's something that the books cannot do. And you should really try to emphasize that in your communication in cinema language. Communication or communicating strong feelings by some mere expressions, reading between the lines, that kind of thing, that it's kind of hard to do. Maybe kind of surprising, in a sense, reading between the lines and everything, ha ha ha. But at times the film may gain a little preachy quality here and there, because it's her edu- educating the audience of what she is going through, and just laying on the bed, really, laying at the hospital, looking at the walls. It's boring. I didn't have that problem with wit. Like the the whole main main point of the film is to be kind of a showcase of what exactly the the, the dying process is when you are as a inside the medical medical complex as as a patient. It's mm-hmm. a, kind of providing you a blueprint how the process will go on and what kind of actually like. Precisely 
how forgotten the, the human experience or how forgotten you as an individual are once you are marked inside the system. Like you point out, like the, the doctors don't really care. Nobody shows, shows up to visit except perhaps out of obligation. And that unfortunately kind of is what medical death is inside the hospital system. Like we all, all would love to, to have the idea that the people taking care of us, the nurses and the doctors, they really care and their heart bleeds out, out for us and they, are, they, are, they give, us, give us the diagnosis, they, they do their utmost best and then they, you know, once it's, it, they realize that they can't really save us, they quietly, they, they put up the, the happy smile and then they quietly go around, and, around the corner and they shed a tear for us because we are so goddamn precious as human beings. But that really is not, how it kind of goes on medical like death and your individuality inside the hospital system it's actually quite clinical process you're more of a you're, you're kind of a subjected to being a, a puzzle or like a number of systems medical system and mechanical systems that just go through the process yeah. and you are either cured or you are, you die at the end of it yeah, and at the end of it, you are a piece of paper. Did it, did it work for you? How, how do you feel about the, the breaking of the fourth wall? For me, it worked. And it, it was not, not a problem because of where the film's kind of a focal point was. Like, because the film so heavily focuses on, precisely on, on the, the clinical process of dying, and dying inside the hospital system. Mm. I, I felt that that's the reason why the film can actually afford being preachy. Had this been some, some type of a, like a more dramatic, like more individual narrative, dramatic narrative, somewhere where we are supposed to follow these, these characters as they, like the cancer patient, I, I don't know, uh, ends up in a cancer group, makes friends, finds a special connection to, to someone else. Had the narrative been something like that, in that case, perhaps the preachiness would have also been a sticking point for me, but it wasn't here because precisely because, you know, that the focus was on kind of educating you on a subject matter and when it's and in those cases i can actually tolerate quite a lot of preachiness yeah i just i just didn't know if this movie was telling me a whole lot any new information about the experience itself but i uh, i would imagine that this would be like a great movie to to show to some kids in primary school not not because of the material would not be something that adults would not connect with either but i think it would be you know great to put uh, people's mind on the right places i understand this perspective of life as well but i don't think this movie was really for me or what was the purpose for me to watch it it all depends on i guess how much you have gone through have heinous material in your life. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, in in my opinion, it kind of has a universal reach for for all ages. I mean, just check out your average TV serial offerings, like your, like your late night. Just scroll through the through the channels late, late evening, 
early at night. And mo- most likely what, what you'll find, you'll find some type of a hospital drama there. ER, well, what have you. I don't really watch uh, hospital th- TV drama shows. Not my genre. But they are like like a dime a dozen. There's a, they get constantly made. And some of them arguably are quite good. I must confess, I, I like some of them. But usually they, they take their, or, or the image that these shows and these stories present to you is precisely that, you know, every patient is, is precious, every life is precious, and the, the whole industry is fi- just filled with these people that hugely care. Mm-hmm. Everybody's heart bleeds out for everybody. And, like, against that that mass, like the ocean of positive hospital depictions, I do think that story like Wit actually has something to offer because it it kind of peels back all the bullshit. And it's more like, well, this is exactly how how the system perceives you once you are inside of it. And that's uh, perhaps a lesson for everybody, really. Mm. Mm. I don't know, the, the title Wit is still kind of questionable, questionable to me. Was it that witty? There's some uh, great language there. You know, there's these two teachers that give you these great quotes and uh, yeah some it's it's well written is it particularly that witty so why the title wit i kept wondering what's your thoughts on that well i i took it that it it references basically our main patient who is a witty person he is something from the academia and the Mm. way how he uh, she is from the academia and the way how she approaches the the her her own cancer and the whole medical process basically everything that happens to her she goes through with a medical or an academic perspective she's something she wants to understand what happens and she realizes why she's being treated the way she's being treated. She kind of understands that. Like, the main point here is not that the doctors are evil or that they are heartless bastards. It's just that the doctors are very much academics. So when they are in a job where they, they are constantly surrounded by death, they more succumb and they succumb back into the more academic approach where they see where they see puzzles and where they kind of just see a mystery they want to solve. It's something that the film points out, like that the nurse states to our main character that the doctors were trying to cure her. They wanted to cure her. But then they realize that they just can't do it. It's it's too for her disease is too foregone. They can't heal it. They they tried. They made it the best attempt they could, and it just wasn't enough. So after that, you know, what can they do? I mean, they kind of go back into the the second academic pro- approach, which is they start to to use her as a medical test trial. Kind of a human petri dish, where they try these different cures, and they see what happens in order to, to do more research on cancer. It's it's not done out of malice, but 
you know, it's it's the academic coldness. And same way also that it applies to, well, to the, to the two main doctors, who also are very intelligent, very clever people, but you kind of, the, the human aspect perhaps is a bit lost with them. You at, And at the end of the day, what you have, you have three quite cold people, three academics who kind of look at each other's work, And, and circle around it, understanding why this person does that and why this person has been like that in the past. Hmm. Uh, I thought that the characters of the film, they, they were kind of, it seemed to suggest that they were building on to some kind of a connection and then there wasn't really a connection and all and mood, mood wise also the film is a bit jumping here and there and perhaps that's, that's uh, yeah, that's Fair enough, you know, you're battling with cancer, things you might fi find funny for a moment and then you kind of realize again, oh, yeah, I have cancer, back to that mode. So it's a bit back and forth and all the relationship with the nurses and the, and the doctor. I mean, it could have gone to the, to the whole kind of a relationship vibe with the doctor. I don't think it ever really gets there. There's a feeling of mutual, you know, respect. I don't know what else is there. There's mutual shame of that, you know, beginning examination. And then there's a little shed of tear at the end by the doctor, even though he was kind of just using her as a kind of a, her, his test subject. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that that's where the film really shines. It, it shines in the way how... Its approach differences from your expectations. Like you mentioned mm -hmm. that you you expected that there would be a relationship or some type of a connection between, you know, the patient and the doctors. And that's completely normal because, you know, the most the, the, the most Hollywood entertainment you get, the most TV series, the whole kind of, kind of hospital subgenre of, of things, <laughs> they they slowly teach you to expect that. Because yeah. in those stories, the doctors always, they, they form these, these connections and relationships to their patients. It's yeah. always hugely heartfelt. And that just is not reality. Like in, in reality, you're, when you go to see a doctor, he or she tries to heal you. But that's, at the end of the day, that's, that's that. Yeah. Connections to the medical staff, they don't form in real life. No matter yeah. how much Hollywood tries to convince you or tries to tell you otherwise. And I kind of, that, that's precisely what I liked about it was that it, like I said, it built back all, the, the, all that bullshit. And just was like, well, he, here's the case. The doctors, yeah. they, they ain't bad people, but they don't really care about you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe the movie also shows you that Cancer doesn't have to be oh, always that bad. It's there's always normal life in between there, talking to people, learning new things, learning something about the, the human experience, even more. I mean, it's it's still life, and there's moments of confusion and all those human things that we go through every day. But hospital, truly, they have the ugliest looks of any buildings inside. That's how I feel 
I, I know that they are, for sure, they are meticulously planned and they are supposed to look the way they are, but they are truly the these corridors of death by the virtue of those halls being void of really any life or of life or feeling or of belonging and reducing yourself to those outfits at the, you know those hospital gowns it's, it's horrible and it's really Beautiful. illustrated well by by the moment where the doc well the teacher is at her class and she's wearing that gown in kind of a combination of of her thought process and what has happened before kind of a flashback yeah, well, the thing about hospitals and, and everything that happens inside of them is kind of that they have been designed for functionality first. Mm. Hospitals are most of the time, but of course, right after I say this, somebody does a Google image search and finds really nicely designed hospital from somewhere. But in general, hospitals are not designed architecturally to to be any way in pleasing to the eye. And then you have the architects who design things like libraries and opera houses. And those people are like more inclined to think about how do I make a pretty building. But I will still stick to my comment that yeah, apart from ugly hospitals, cancer is pretty boring, I, I think, as an experience to the person who's Dying suffering because altogether. T- tends yeah. to be boring as shit. Yeah. And, Hollywood and... like once again like to get back into, into saying bad things about Hollywood, but Hollywood really likes to portray the act of dying in a really dramatic fashion. Somebody dies on film and the music swells, and he he or she looks somebody else in the eye. There's a holding back tears moment, and he, he or she, the dying person, says something truly profound. To be, you know, while while they take their dying breath, and that's that's Hollywood death for you. And in reality, none of that shit really happens. It's it's really pro- boring, uh, like you said, and it's kind of a. Just like, you know, the, the medical field in, in wit, it's kind of just a systematic process. Your body shuts down slowly, like different things, your your heart just stops beating. Stops well, pumping air, air, air to your brain, you know, six minutes later. There's no even reason to bring you back. There you go. But if we want to look at something that definitely at times, at least, is not boring at all Chrysan Whispers from Sweden Ingmar Bergman yeah you can't say it's boring you can say <laughs> a million other things yeah. you can say that it's overtly melodramatic like most of Bergman's work but sure as shit ain't boring <laughs> no, what's what's going on here so Chrysan Whispers uh, this is the story of a possessed woman with cancer and the rest of the household being some sort of, I don't know, perverts. There's ghosts and schemers or betrayals and betrayers. There's the woman who's playing behind her husband's back. And the husband tries to kill himself. <laughs> Knows he's been but, betrayed. But kind of fucks it up because of speed. <laughs> and a Finn would have bloody well pulled that one off. 
Yeah, yeah, and yeah. would it have been so overtly melodramatic when tra- attempting a suicide? I'm starting to understand where all this brotherly hatred is coming from. Uh, but... <laughs> God damn. What? In my not, 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 oh. not to say anything, like not, not to not to be overtly critical of the Swedes. <laughs> For fuck's sake, people, learn how to kill yourselves. It's not that hard. Yeah. So, one tries to kill himself, fails miserably. Then one tries to, f- I guess, feed breast milk to a cancer survivor or <laughs> whatever the hell is going on with that undressing next to a person with a death sentence. One suffering the cancer is awakened from the dead and then comes to haunt the the, the feeder of m- milk. <laughs> Serves her right to sit there topless next to her until, I don't know, eternity, as it seems to suggest. I, I know it's supposed to symbolize some kind of a hankering the girls have towards what was, or probably that's what it's supposed to do. Or just that melancholia that you mentioned. And... And around all of this, you have you have this lady waiting to die, just waiting to slowly wither. And when you first open your eyes every morning, I guess you're kind of thinking, why the hell am I here? Or, gosh, I'm so thankful to be alive still and writing to this notebook that another shitty day ahead. And let's die a little more today. Must be fun. Smiling at something for a few seconds, then remembering that, oh yeah, it's not fun after all to be here again. But then you're trying to be silent so that no one else will notice you because they're all looking at you differently and observing you. I think which which the movie very well communicates in the beginning five minutes. They can't say it, but every day in the observer's head it must go something like, oh nice, you're up, so... How dead do you feel this morning? And in some cases, somebody's probably thinking, I hope you die soon so we can end this goddamn misery in the household. But that's easier said than done. Just, we only need to look at the interior decoration. The, the raging red burns my eyes and whoever designed this place is, is definitely a design terrorist. Maybe they shouldn't have, you know, redesigned, redecorated this building for their set needs. They had a building, maybe just keep it dilapidated looking instead would have been a better choice. You know who you are, whoever did that interior decor. Gosh darn it. It's also a very formal movie with very literally like dialogue and it's very over observant dialogue even between your own sisters, definitely between between the doctor and one of the sisters. Generally, not a fan of this kind of approach. Yeah, Crimson Whispers, and, and Crimson Whispers is, is the film where you know today's podcast approach slowly starts to get off the rails. It, like this is this is one of those films where we did try to do our due diligence when choosing the films, and we did try to find a movie where the cancer kind of where, where it. Would not be just a quick motivator for the main character. And Cries and Whispers, it doesn't exactly do that. Perhaps there's another film in today's lineup that more does that. In, in Cries and Whispers, however, the cancer does stay well 
pretty constantly in in the film's narrative. It's it 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 kind of it's it's kind of a like like have your cake and eat it situation. Guys and Whispers very much wants to to look at the the close to relatives and the loved ones of a cancer patient. That's where the the film starts. It starts you we have three sisters and the housemaid who who have well various degrees of of personal connections with each each other. And we are supposed to look at how how the sisters and the maid react to our main character, or, or, the, or not necessarily even main character, but but Agnes having and slowly dying of cancer, like how how they approach and how how they deal with the situation. That's a, at least where the film starts off with, and then it wears off into the personal relationships with with the sisters and and their husbands and. Or all this other stuff, which kind of does work still in the in the context of these are things that go through in in the close relatives of, of a cancer victim's heads. Yes, but at the same time, you can kind of may also make the argument that the film kind of drops this approach and starts to more and more just focus into the dramatic mm. tensions between the sisters. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's it's kind of the catalyst, the whole cancer for everything evaporating in that house. Uh, everybody having some conflicts, and then they are they are basically it's getting it's getting worse because of this. And weird things start to happen. Everybody, at least like most of them, seem to be suddenly I don't know lesbian. <laughs> and uh, one tries to, you know, hurt herself with a piece of glass, an event that might actually be in her head, at least partially. The doctor. I think that that was a flashback. Uh huh. Okay. So rem- reminiscing something that happened way before. Yeah. And I, I think this is more and more about the närmare that keeps. Repeating here that the, the Swedish, Swedish word for getting closer, and there is this uh, scene with the kind of a ghost of the dead sister who keeps calling the the sisters back to her room. Now she's suddenly there for some reason, and keeps calling the house housewife, närmare, närmare. So this film has cancer in it, but it's about much more than that. It seems to be about keeping people in your life close to you not away from you, doesn't entirely work in the end for everybody in the end, but it, it's a theme with all of the characters. Yeah, man, I, I'm, I'm not saying that it's uh, it's wrong to do it or it, it's it's the wrong decision to, to take this approach. Like there, There's a validity in, in the film's attempts to actually study and look at the the close the, the loved ones of the patient and exactly kind of taking take, take a look exactly how the act of having to witness somebody else to succumb in uh, succumb to, to this disease how it kind of affects you what type of emotions and feelings it brings up to up in you and how it can 
open the old emotional and and uh, psychological wounds that you may carry. Yeah, hey, it's, it's a very heavy situation to witness witness someone someone dying, and it it can like it can bring up a multitude of ideas and and thoughts and feelings inside of you. And on that front, you know, Cries and Whispers does, in my opinion, do pretty good job in in dealing with its subject matter. The main problem, perhaps, that I I had with the film was that at times it it got, and once again, this is my personal perspective problem because I precisely tried to look look these films from the point of view of the cancer and how pe- pe- perhaps. And how cancer as a subject matter, what type of observations these movies draw from, you know, from from it. And on, on that front, Cries and Whispers gets br- a little bit messy because at time it comes increasingly hard to tell what of these ideas and emotions and old wounds that now get opened, what of that happens because they are witnessing the, the death of their sister and the situation the, or, or, or her, and her cancer and what of how much of it is just you know basically just the dramatic tension that would bubble to the surface in any other given situation also yeah i think it's a good movie but once again i think it's not so much about the the sickness of itself and the one that might be dealing with the most of the bunch tonight is the movie that we already discussed with. I'm sure we get back to this, but should we discuss Ikiru? Well, I, I guess we have to approach Ikiru at, at some point, seeing how it, it, it is in the today's lineup. And Ikiru... It is the moment where the train, in my opinion, goes truly off the rails, and there's no coming back from from it. <laughs> I see. Uh-huh. I, I I I confess this one right out of the gate. I had not previously seen Ikiru. I was mm-hmm. very well aware of the film. Like basically everybody, everybody, absolutely everybody including your dead dog, has been aware of Ikiru. It's one of the Akira Kurosawa movies that just kind of can't escape hearing about, no matter how hard you would even try. So, obviously, I had heard of uh, of Ikiru, but I I had never actually seen it. It was one... Because of its, its, its like, famous nature... It was one of those films from Kurosawa that I had always kind of uh, just uh, boosted on seeing it on the to the other day. It, it was like I I was more ready to check everything else from Kurosawa's filmography than Ikiru because absolutely everybody had already talked about Ikiru. Hmm. Well, perhaps it's surprisingly critical towards. And I mean, we're talking about 1952 Japan, for God, God's sake, and it's really critical, at least seems to be in the beginning, towards the kind of meaningless life where you're just wasting away your time at the office and not doing anything. Well, it's not so much a criticism towards the work environment, I guess. It's a criticism towards not putting your 
heart in it, which then you might even see as uh, some kind of, uh, you know, it reminds me of this typical communist propaganda that, uh, you know, you, you have to, everybody puts your puts their heart in it and then it's wonderful. You're doing it for the state or you're doing it for your leader or whatever. It's possible. Is it this kind of a romanticism towards work and doing it together? Maybe there's a bit of that too. I, I wouldn't say that Ikiru is a, ro- a romantic is romanticizing work. Mm-hmm. If if <laughs> something if something Ikiru is a scathing critique of city governance. Yeah, which would be then a criticism towards state, which would then not be so much romanticism of work or working for state, right? I don't know if we're finding anything clear cut. On the front of if this is making a statement one way or the other. In in my opinion, it most definitely is a making a statement. Like the way how how the city governance here is being portrayed, it is so incapable. It's so messy. It's so lazy and so self-serving that it basically is the main antagonist of the film. <laughs> it's it's more of a presence. Than our main character's cancer. In, it in is. this movie, it's it's the opening. It's it's the book ends of the film. Is the the offices of the what was it public planning section or what what was the the sub subsection of city governance that our main character works in? It's interesting to choose this setup for for the film because there were several ideas thrown thrown around in which kind of environment we would have the lead character in what kind of circumstances whether it would be a, like a poor person just person living on the street somebody working in the office there were a bunch of ideas th- thrown around and clearly if you ask me it would have been beautiful to see like a completely broken down man who is living on the streets and then gets somehow to hear about cancer, I don't know how it would be possible, though, if it's not possible to pay for the visit. Anyways, would hear about the cancer and then would be in the like the worst of the worst condition, mood-wise. And then you build from that and how you would change the world from that kind of position. That would be really interesting. But we have this, you know, moderately well-doing leader, sex- section section chief in the office. And then out of nowhere, in the middle point of the film, he just randomly picks up an assignment. Somebody wants to build a park. The protagonist just gets really obsessed about this one task, just wants really hard to build this park, which in and of itself is kind of okay. You know, he's putting all his effort to something that he wants to finish off before he dies. But then at the end, he maybe it's played the tad too much that he all of these guys who are remembering his past that, hey, I remember one thing, hey, me too, and hey, I too. It's like they're making him in this this kind of a cult status that we should, every one of us should thrive to be like him, and then they don't. And uh, I'm not sure if that position was, if this was interesting enough course to take, that this whole park course. I don't know, just what's your what's your idea? Well, not to wait on that question, but we approach the like from your question we approach kind of the the thing that in my opinion is is most interesting when it comes to Ikiru 
which is the film's kind of a western presentation or its western legacy. Ikiru is, is mysterious, it's one of those films that absolutely everybody talks about. Like I said, you can't escape Ikiru. And the narrative that goes around with, with the film is that it's a film about main character ha- having a cancer diagnosis and then deciding to build the park. Like, if, if you Google like we did, like top films about cancer, you try to look at what are the recommended films that, that talk about cancer, Ikiru is always on the top lists. Hmm. Top 20 films about cancer, Ikiru is there like number one. And if you Google the synopsis of, of Ikiru, or you listen to director X mentioning his his most beloved films and the Ikiru hap- and Ikiru happens to be on the list and the director gives the synopsis. When whenever if you try to search for the synopsis for the film, the synopsis always goes like there's a there is this really gray office worker uh, who work, works at, at city governance. He finds out that he has a cancer, and as he's as he's a dying act, he decides to build this bar, park for these ladies that nobody else else has done. That that's the synopsis that you get for Ikiru every single bloody time. And like yeah yeah, technically. Technically, you are correct. Like points for technicality, but the image that Ikiru's placement on film lists, the image that the synopsis given for Ikiru in, in Western media, they all they they paint a completely different type of movie than what Ikiru in the end ends up being. Like, like if if I would. You know, give give you the synopsis. Here, here's a movie about about this this old man, guy who who works at city governance. He finds out that he has he has a terminal cancer. It's like six months to live, and as he's dying, thing he decides to build this park for you know these ladies that nobody has ever ever done anything to help them. Like, what type of narrative you actually think about in your in your head? From that synopsis alone, without actually seeing the movie, but from that synopsis. Well, that it's not really much about cancer, is it? Well, the narrative that I would paint from and and did paint from that synopsis is that it that the film would start show, showing a main character at, at his work it would be like fifteen minutes. There would be like increasing health troubles. He would go to a doctor to find out. Would get the cancer diagnosis. Hear about you know the the six months he has he has on his clock. Would then start to really think about like what what can I still do with my life? How how can I have a me- meaning for my life in these six months? Would find this this park project somewhere, and then the rest of the film forty five like an, in in an hour and a half in a ninety five minute film something like uh, from 50 to 60 minutes would be him fighting to get that part built there would be obstacles the rest of the city council wouldn't want want to you know have the part built he would have to you know go head to head against the rest of the city council to fight for to have the, have the park there would be some type of a building problem that shows up would be that uh, would turn out that the soil 
would be the wrong type. It would be like this this really, really loose sand. Sand ground and it couldn't actually hold the weight of the park. So that would be kind of one of the obstacles and you would have find a really clever way around it. And, and stuff like that. And then mm-hmm. like everybody always points out like your Google most legendary cinematic moments. There's, there's always the mentioning of our main character Watanabe dying at the park bench or dying on the swing at the park that he has built. Like that, in, in my mind, that would be like the closing shot. The very last mm. minutes, after after fighting for 40 minutes to have the park, the far, park is finally finalized, it has been opened, it's the first night, the first, it's the, the night following the opening day, and our main character is sitting in the swing looking at the park he has built, and he dies. Five minutes more material and roll credits. That's kind of the, the type of film that I would actually think. And I was expecting, coming from the legacy of, that Ikiru has, coming from the synopsis, coming coming from its legacy as a, as a great cancer drama, coming from everybody gushing about, you know, that, that famous shot of him sitting in the swing dying when he takes his last breath. Oh, from all of that, mm. I was imagining so, something like that type of narrative. So that and would be the, mov- the f- movie that you would have preferred. Not necessarily preferred, but that was the movie that I expected. And the movie that, that, in case somebody listening has not yet seen Ikiru, the movie you end up with is a movie where, first of all, it's, it's a two-hour movie, and uh, like the cancer kind of just shows up early as a motivator. He gets the cancer diagnosis, here's about the six months, that's that's something that motivates him to think about the meaning of life. That the park really does, that the famous park thing doesn't really enter up the pi- picture properly up until, you know, what, hour and 15 minutes into the film. So it's really late when, when the whole park comes up. And it kind of dealt with really quickly, honestly. Like, like if, if you expected to see him really fight for the park, yeah, well, well, not gonna happen. He decides to do the park. Then it cuts to black. Next scene, it's his funeral. And the, actually, the, the whole park thing, it just plays out in, in like, these lured fas- flashbacks that are played during his funeral wake. It, yeah. The, the fu- wake has... has guests from, you know, his his colleagues from the city governance, and they, the colleagues all start to have like this. I noticed this one thing, and then enter flashback. And there is a moment like where he does, does something for the park, or he yeah. doesn't. It's, it's kind yeah. of... The, the park is quite forgotten, actually, if you compare it exactly how big deal of the, the synopsis of the film actually make it out to be. Huh. Okay, I, I just thought that it was giving a lot of attention to the park and it feels a bit like they had some other thoughts maybe some other material other ideas how to make the story but in the end they decided that okay somewhere in the midway well maybe like 70 percent through the movie they just inform like with the with the, those like a narrator or who does the voice that okay and five months later he died and that's it. And then we got to the funeral. It was a, it was a little abrupt, 
I'm not sure if it really... I, I don't think it was a big problem. But I think it could have played it also the other way, just gathering all the sort of flashbacks and story moments together and then showing the actual struggles that are happening with the park building. That could be one way. Yeah. Honestly, I don't really mind it. But like you said, that, yeah, that would have been powerful, having that as the last shot where where he's just dying in his park. Sure, more yeah, Hollywoodian. In, in, in here, it's... Actually, that the fam famous dying shot. It's 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 in one of the quick flashbacks. This one cop actually shows up at the wake and tells you, and and is is like, oh boy, do you know? Do I have something to tell you all? And then he tells mm -hmm. about how he saw saw what number at the park that one night. That's where the famous famous dying shot comes from. It's it's not any kind of a closure for this film. Following that flashback, there's like five more of them still to come. So it, yeah. it, it ends nothing, like like film structure-wise. You would think that it does, but nope. And when it comes to, to like him really having to fight for the park, that also kind of does not happen. That there is like, like a, a mentioning that he faced obstacles and tries to show you these obstacles, but mostly... Other obstacles are just solved, not by his ingenuity, not really by him figuring something out. He just solves all the obstacles by annoying the shit out of everybody else. That's <laughs> with, like, with those, with those eyes, <laughs> twenty yeah, times. Yeah, and si simply <laughs> just you know being quiet and and staying still. That's like it comes to like once again, once again. I'm not saying that. The film does anything anything wrong here. I'm mm. more in, curious about the the kind of the Western legacy and the Western fame of this movie and how how that legacy contradicts the movie itself. Because of course you would think, of course you would think that there would be like like scenes there there would be big scenes where he has to figure something out where he really has to fight for the part. Where somebody's, we are not most definitely building that park, and he gets up from his chair and he's like, like you goddamn dumbass, you have to build it. Those people deserve something. They we never actually given anything to them. We have to give them at least this one park. You expect that type of a scene, but well, what what you actually get is he goes to see one of his colleagues, and the colleague is like, we are not go gonna build this park, and then he quietly, then our main character just quietly sits in his place. Looking at nothing. Until the colleague is kind of embarrassed and kind of annoyed. Just stamps the papers. Kind of like, fuck it, have your park. Just get out of here. And well, uh, there... it, it, it actually becomes a larger thing when when we finally are shown the gangsters here. Or the mm. people who want to use that space to build a red light to district. Like these guys are... Uh, it's not said that they are gangsters, but they behave like gangsters. One of them has this huge scar on his cheek, and they're really aggressive and really physical, and they are kind of kind of giving him the, you know, you step back down with your park plans if you know what's good for your Mr. Talk. Mm -hmm. And that can also gets resol resolved by him just quiet, staying quiet and just looking at them. It's kind of yeah. annoying the hell out of them until they back off. Well, maybe more than annoying them, just uh, shocking them with the expression. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know, I know. It, mm. It's supposed to be the, the moment 
it it or it's supposed to be there that the dying man has nothing to lose and they can see it in his eyes moment. Yeah. Really? Yep. Yep. But but the fa- but but the actual deed, the actual thing that he does, is still the exactly the same thing as as what he does with the with the you know the the city governance leader of what 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 they have mayor or something like that. This mm. film where, where he also like like once again what what he does is he just stays quietly still until the mayor yeah. is like oh fuck off and then just gives gives in. Just get be, be rid of him. So yeah. yeah, yeah. The the meaning of the look in his eyes is different with, with the mayor when contrasted with the gangsters. That there's a different meaning being con- conveyed. That that is true. But the physical action still is very much the same. Yeah, I I get what you're saying. I just didn't have these problems with the movie. I didn't keep them in such I, of a I, high I'm, regard. I'm, I'm not saying it's a it's a problem. I'm not saying it's a problem, but once again, harken back into how the film is being portrayed whenever, you know, it's on the, the, the film lists, or when somebody gives the synopsis, or somebody talks about the film, that the picture, even though they don't say, they don't say that, that the film would have a different narrative than, than, it, than what it does. Nobody is lying to you, but the picture being Painted for you between the lines, kind of paints out a different type of movie than what Ikiru actually is. Another, mm. like, to like, think about this. Think about this. Uh, Ikiru is being constantly in, in Western media. It's been to- talked about as a as a great drama. It's one of the, the big drama movies ever made. That that's its its legacy. Really impactful drama. And if you ask me, Ikiru is is a it's more of a comedy movie, really. It's it's a dark comedy. This is Akira Kurosawa making a comedy, that, that's, but it's not on comedy lists. No, it's 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 in the heavy dramas, and I'm kind of like, what the fuck? Hmm. Seriously, Western film media. I guess it's how you take it. I understand you're you're from the 2022, and and now you're looking at a film from 1952. Kind of seventy-year gap here in filmmaking sensibilities, and it seems to me that you're just looking at this film with with an overly critical eye, just looking at things that were kind of the part and parcel of the day. I'm not talking about the bloody film. I'm talking about the legacy that the film has in Western discourse. How does this affect the film, really? It doesn't, but it's a curious event. Mm-hmm. Why in the na- in, in name of nine hells, we Westerners talk about a different movie than what it is? Why do we do that? I don't like, see, like, see why, any comedy. Why nobody talks about this as an Akira Kurosawa comedy? Why, why, where do you see the comedy, really? Come on. Well, basically in the slapstick in nature how the film operates. Basically, exactly how... Kind of humorously incompetent and lazy, the city governance is being portrayed throughout the movie. In the moment at the very end of the film, when everybody, every colleague of Watanabe at his funeral wake is going on like, oh, we are going to change, we are going to change tomorrow, we are going to change, cut to the next morning, and it's the same bullshit as it was when Watanabe was alive. Uh, 
talking about the goddamn, you know, father-in-law of Watanabe's son, who constantly throughout the film is being told that Watanabe is sick, but whose running theory why Watanabe changed at the, at his di- last days is that you know Watanabe has a young had a young mistress. Mm-hmm. He, he goes into speeches about how a young mistress for an old man can really vigorate the man's whole body. It's it's nothing more. It's it's god damn. That's that's comedy material. You you have a goddamn jackass there. <laughs> it's not dramatic anything. It's it's like that's that's comedy. We have a comedic character. We have borderline almost slapstick. We have well, we have the whole city governance. It, it's well, dark comedy material. Nah, it's not even remotely. Yeah, it is. It's, it is. It's the 1950s. And, and it's, basically, it's not... nobody talks about this. Nah. Nobody mentions this film, the, the comedic aspects and comedic realities of Ikiru. It's 1950s. In West, we only talk about, you know, the heavy drama. It's the Japanese society. It's the 1950s. And it's the filmmaking of the time. So no, you have it's, this... it's, it's not an accident. Kurosawa did that on purpose. Don't buy it. It's simplifying it's, the oh, themes. God, God it's, damn it, man. No. It, it's, it's on purpose. He made comedic scenes on purpose. It's, it's not some type of a accident on behalf of the director. No. no it, that, well, that's the make... Western narrative that keeps seeping in, in your statement there. I've seen some other Akira Kurosawa. I can't, I can't make that kind of a distinction that this would be comedic. What I can see is that the film is making a very caricaturic effort in a short amount of time. Okay, the movie is like 2 hours 20 minutes. Trying to make a caricature of these characters to make the point home for the audience. But it does that to make a point that yeah, the son is not listening, not living the life, not understanding and not loving, blah, 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 so so that there can be this conflict. It's making the point, but Akira Kurosawa still is making comedic moments on purpose. Where's the source I, for I, that? that? That's <laughs> a hill I will die on, man. I, I sure as shit, I'm not going to say that, you know, that comedic aspects in Ikiru are by accident. I was thinking this conversation would go in the vein of, well, we have a film from 1952 and certain things might not feel like authentic in a way that if, if this film would be released now, we would laugh it on the floor. But taking it, it, it's from this time, of course, it's poetic and beautiful and different. So Come on, I'm, man. man. Film, film and film genres haven't changed that much. Comedy films were made back in, back in the day. They did use similar tools. It's it's not that the language of film has changed so much. Well, didn't find it. What I found it found most funny was that bringing this guy on such a huge pedestal and then making the decision to better your life and at the workplace as well due to these events and then not doing anything about it. Yeah, precisely, precisely. That's that's a funny moment in the film. That's true. It's it's a bitter fee, It's a bitter sweet. Like, like I said, it's a, it's a dark comedy. It's a sad moment because they everybody everybody absolutely everybody 
at the city governance goes back on their solemn word that they will change. But it's also, you know, a comedic moment. All of these grandiose mm-hmm. promises that we will do better and they all go to trash right next day. Yeah, yeah, that You, you that have moment. to laugh about, uh, uh, laugh to it. Like, come on. Uh, I, I, I did, but the rest yeah, of it... Yeah, you did, you did. Because, because, a comedic moment. Well, it's just making the point that we keep just bullshitting ourselves and it takes cancer oh, or something life-changing. Comedy can make a point. We have a history of poignant com- comedic, comedy, comedies and comedic film. Like, uh, that the fact that it's, it's, it's a dark comedy does not mean that it can't make a point. Yeah, I'm just not making the stretch that this is a dark comedy still. It most definitely is a dark comedy. Put it in that locker, if you will. I most, I, I will, I will, and everybody like I, I've been camped how, or I, I have been been pitching and complaining, complaining in the in the previous episodes about how how horror films get this this treatment that that good horror films are constantly being regendered into other film genres. Like uh, Alien is not considered to be to be a horror film. It, it's it's given to the science fiction movies, and The Exorcist not allowed to be as a horror film. It's it's credited to to drama films, etc. Genre, etc., etc., etc. And in case somebody now gets offended at their homes for me saying that Ikuru is a dark comedy, which it most definitely is, you know, well, well this is how it feels like. So fuck off. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh yeah, before we get to this, it's not really related to Tick, but the movies in general tonight. What do you think? Is is cancer genre of films a, a chick flick genre? And why are there so many times women involved in cancer movies? Or is that my truncated frame of reverence? I would say that's a mostly frame of reference. First of all, it it comes down into question of exactly what is cancer film genre because it's not easy to define as we have found out today uh, tonight when we did do our utmost best in order to have quote unquote cancer films in today's episode. And as it pointed out, it kinda is extremely hard to do that. So yeah. it's it's a question of, of exactly what is cancer films. Because movies that just have the cancer in them, in some form or the other, well, those we have quite a lot. Especially if we count in the the symbolic presentations of cancer. In in that case we, we have like we have Hollywood comedies like Fifty Fifty. We have and Pocket List, for example. Those those are straight up cancer comedies where uh, mm. somebody has cancer and it's a, it's a comedic movie. If we also count in, for example, the more symbolic and abstract abstract depictions of something that could be a depiction of cancer. In that case, we know well horror genre is, is full of these examples. We have something like Malignant, we have something like Basket Case. It's it's hard to say if, if, like, for example, Basket Case. If it's a presentation, 
symbolic presentation of cancer or if it's just a symbolic presentation of a tumor. But basically still, more or less like, we, we cancer is a thing that kind of in one way or the other easily can creep up all over, over cinema. But like I said, it, it comes down into how we defy how we depict cancer cinema, what, what do we mean, what type of movies are we talking about when we talk about cancer movies? Quite right. No, well, now we're talking about a documentary, TIG. It's a documentary about a female comedian. Female com- comedians, yeah. I have to say I haven't watched any female comedians as far as I can remember. For some reason, it is... They, they really don't have the same foothold yet there as uh, male comedians. But anyway, doesn't matter. Tig is a female comedian and has breast cancer in the proceedings. Might be horrible to say of me, but I felt that in the first few minutes of the film that the fel- film felt a little self-indulgent. But after I got over that feeling, no, no. From the material that I see in this documentary anyway, I could not find her very funny, unfortunately. Even when she was at the top of the game, I guess, with the cancer jokes. But I'm glad it resonated with people. It's a very interesting subject to make fun of. And I do think, I agree with her, that I'm sure she would agree. Not sure if it was uh, explicitly pointed out in the documentary but she definitely um, seems to think that that cancer and everything should be something that we should we should be able to laugh at anything right and I think this is a nice depiction of that take thoughts well taking into today's lineup when we were talking about wit you mentioned that the film kind of shows you that life goes on even if you have a cancer and it, it's like the world keeps revolving around and cancer therefore it, it's not like a mystical thing mm. and tick is all about that approach like the the whole documentary the, the main point it makes it basically is how tick notaro's life goes on after her dia- diagnosis and after she gets treated for her cancer and mm. most likely is is cured i don't know what her cur- current status is cancer wise but the documentary makes the case that that she was cured through you know breast uh, breast surgery and that cancer even though there is a risk that it would renew it hasn't at least yet renewed itself so tick is all, all about Kinda accepting the fact that you have cancer and then accepting the fact that, you know, life goes on and the mo- next day will be Monday, cancer mm. or no. And it's a film about how you try to to accept and deal with the fact that you have a cancer. Yeah, that's right. That's what struck with people. And... Uh quite risky things that she's doing here the whole egg extraction kids or no kids going inside her head whether she should try it out or not 
Well, she goes and tries it, even though it might be life-threatening, maybe the cancer would come back. It doesn't, luckily, so yeah, she's able to have her experiment, unfortunately, nothing comes off that, except now she has tried, and good for her. And then the story uh, heads to the whole adoption stage. Yeah, it did kind of like... There are like two acts to to take if you if you would like to dissect the film that way. Like you you have two halves of the movie. That the first half of the narrative is Tick finding out that she has cancer and and dealing with the cancer. This is uh, this part of the of the story is is focused on the the theme of turning something negative. The in this case the diagnosis into something positive. In in Tignotaro's case, that would be fame. After do, giving one live comedy pre, comedy show where she comes out, out of quote-unquote cancer closet and, and honestly talks about her condition, her fame all of a sudden skyrockets. Practically overnight. She goes... The, the, the show goes viral and following that she's being... Interviewed in in all the major magazines, her show starts to to sell better than than before, and and like, like stuff stuff like that. Her her skyro- career skyrockets as a, as a follow up as a fo- following from from that one comedy sh- live show that she that she did. Yeah, and then the second half of of the film deals with. Well, basically, with the with the point that you can't kind of return back to the past. Your life can't return to the way it was, even if you get get cured of your of your cancer. And this is kind of the the point that comes up comes up with the, the risk of the the hormone therapy and the ticks and career wise when it shows ticks problems, kind of reinvent herself. Following all, all the cancer jokes and her career track when she did have cancer, she kind of now has to on, on the second half of the film. She kind of has to figure out uh, how and what type of material she's going to perform now that she no mm-hmm. longer has cancer and she can't open her her shows with the "Hey, I have cancer" line. Yeah, that's true. That's a dilemma. I have no idea how she's doing now regarding the whole comedy side of things. But what I did keep thinking throughout the the whole documentary was that what makes people fascinated about or what what makes people laugh about cancer? Is it because we fear cancer and then it helps us to, you know, if we are given the ability to sort of normalize cancer via comedy, then it gives us a little fuzzy feeling inside that hey, you know, it's not that bad because because Dick doesn't think it's not it's so bad. Kind of earthing cancer. Yeah, comedy has historically been used as a tool to kind of talk about and alleviate hard hard and painful subject matters. Yep. And in that case, yeah, perhaps like with her career and and with the rise in fame that that she receives following that that one 
night live comedy show. It could be like people responding to the fact that they can, through her, they they can all kind of alleviate their fear of cancer. Because she makes fun of it, they can laugh about it. And perhaps also because there is kind of also a taboo aspect when making jokes. And overall, talking about cancer, you are not like you are, you are not all supposed to lead the conversation talking about cancer. Kind of in the same way, like you in general are not supposed to joke about cancer. This podcast tonight has made a couple of cancer jokes and perhaps ends up, you know, making a couple of more. Who knows? And that may be something that lands us also heap in a heap of water. We may be branded as insensitive and, and cold-hearted because we joke about this this hugely traumatic thing, cancer. But Yeah, sure, sure. What will happen is we push out this episode, we put like tabloid letters, cancer, and we put a tumor in the preview image. And we get like 20 listens. Well, well, come on, man. With the opening line, uh, title, or, or you know the the thumbnail text, that's right. I have cancer, and we may get twenty-one. <laughs> that's that's nice thinking. I should put you on the whole marketing thing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I I do kind of suspect that that's that might be why Tick all of a sudden skyrocketed. Comedy fame-wise, follow, following that one night. There is also because, you know, she has cancer and then she makes jokes about it. It kind of gives the okay for the audience to, to laugh about it. Like, you know, us, us two making cancer jokes here, like, like I said, may brand us being insensitive because, well, at least to my knowledge, neither one of us has a diagnosis and... To my knowledge, neither one of us has cancer at the moment. And yet here we are, we are we are joking about it. But that's a, a kind of a whole obstacle that the audiences of Tik Notaro kind of didn't have to go over. Because Notaro did have a diagnosis. And she made the jokes. So it's okay to laugh laugh at cancer in at you know in that in that context. Yeah, I think everybody should be able to make jokes about almost everything. If you're not a Jew, you're making jokes about the Jews. Yeah, sure. If you make the right Jew joke, there's wrong ways to go about it. Same goes for cancer, I suppose. Yeah, there's, there's a reason why we haven't <laughs> done a Holocaust episode. Well, 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 or Schindler's List upcoming. <laughs> but like, no, I don't, I, we don't... I, it's something kind of like a fear if we just keep on skipping on a subject. I realize the position that I'm in. I don't have cancer as, as far as I know. So I've come from a certain position. I don't know everything. I don't know the experience of going through cancer. So yeah, of course. But I think it's also healthy and maybe helpful even for those cancer sufferers out there that there's some, you know, the two guys from Finland who are just... <laughs> not taking it all too seriously because there has to be some bright lining in everything yeah i i agree with with that yeah i i'm really 
impressed by seeing what Tig is doing here. Being a comedian and getting cancer. <laughs> Fantastic. And pulling through it. At least in the film and being able to perform and joke about it. It's amazing. And uh, <laughs> I hope I would be able to do anything like Tig if I get ever if I ever get a diagnosis. I really hope to be in that frame of mind. But what I think would happen would be just that I start hating all the stupid little things that humans say or do or how they behave around me when I have them. I would be just a horrible person for everybody. I really hope that would not happen. But uh, we will come back to all of these movies in a sec. But so what did we learn? Is this the right question to ask? I don't know if this is the right question to ask, but there are... I feel that there are very few movies that, okay, this probably will make me sound really arrogant then. Can't be helped. Somebody always doesn't like what I'm saying. That's fine. There are very few movies, though, that I that I feel that are really, truly making a learning experience on me. There are very few movies that do that. There's very few movies which really affect me. We've both, both watched thousands of movies in our lives, and it's not an exaggeration. So at this point, watching movies about cancer, what's what's left to feel? What's left to experience, Henrik? What's left to say? Like every new movie for me, it's a new disappointment on some, some level. Or not, because I know what to expect. It's really not going to be exactly what I would like it to be, because nothing ever seems to live up to our imagination of what a film should be, should have been. And... Yeah, I'm not so affected by this. I'm not sure if I should be. But this was a so-so experience watching these films. Yeah, I, I'm more on, on more posit- positive. Like, to talk about the surprises that the preparation or for, for tonight's episode kind of brought up for, for me. Well, well, the first one, obviously, is that exactly how incredibly difficult it seems to be for Hollywood and, and cinema altogether to really talk about cancer. How few movies there are that really tries to focus on the disease and not just use cancer as a, as a vehicle, as an, as an emotional vehicle for the main character to get motivation to do something. That was kind of kind of surprising. I, I would have thought that in in the the millions of movies that have been made mm. finding the four movies for today tonight's lineup would have been easier yeah yeah easier and that there would have been more of an experience to go through alas uh, it's a bit hard to say what to say about it otherwise than uh, apart from you know the cultural things that we can say about Ikiru or but we can say that, hey, yeah, this movie gave us a pretty good overall view, probably, of the experience of having cancer, all the stages and understanding the some of the medical jargon or what have you. But <clears throat> maybe we'll, we can open up a little bit better via these questions. So, so special mention for an actor goes to. Well, I'm going to give it to Emma Thompson for wheat. Hmm. Yeah, sure. Let's give it to Emma Thompson. Bring to attention some very small role in the film and raise him or her to a pedestal. 
Absolutely nothing. Uh, I think the dog in Ikiru was a wonderful performance. What resonated with you the most or the least? All films have really strong performances, especially if, if keeping in mind the genres that these films fall into. Like, obviously our fictional movies, the, the lead ladies who have, have, you know, who have cancers and in Cries and Whispers case, also, you know, the two other sisters, really strong performances. And also, you know, for, for Thich Nhat in her documentary, keeping in mind it's a documentary made post, you know, her getting well, a, st- a strong performance in that sense. Like, yeah. I wouldn't put her against Emma Watson in, in wit and compare, like, obviously she's not on that level, but then again, you know, a doc- post-cancer documentary, <laughs> she even couldn't, like, that's that's an unfair scaling. Yeah, well, a person who actually had cancer versus one who doesn't. Yeah, also, good point. Well, for me, I don't, I freaking don't know. But for me, I for sure what kind of resonated me with me or what made me feel anything was some of the kind of darkest moments of these films where they get the diagnoses and those somehow just generate in me also this kind of a gulp reaction that life is pretty life is pretty tough sometimes and if if you want a cheat code for for today's quickies you know just say something nice about Cries and Whispers and Ikiru. They come from <laughs> Kurosawa and Berryman, so they are curated filmmakers. <laughs> that was one of the resonating parts, but I like the cinematography, of, obviously, of Ikiru, one of those shots. when He's with the swing, even though you might say that the scene has been misplaced. Great shots, great set. And yeah, sure, we have great filmmaking here. Bariman is something that you should check out from, from Sweden. Akira Kurosawa, obviously, you should check out this movie and make up your mind and tell us how you feel about it on our Facebook pages. But to say I would have been blown away by any of this stuff, it's it's, it's impossible. Do you think the films have any staying power legacy? Uh, kind of case by case in, in here. Uh, Ikiru, well, for fuck's sake, it already has. Good. Yeah. It, it it has like no matter how I feel about the presentation that the legacy in West gives to the film, it's undeniable that the film has a legacy. It's it's one of the the like it, it's on every single top sci-fi horror action film lists ever created because nobody can credit a comedy to Akira Kurosawa's name. Action Goddamn stops. <laughs> no matter how much you shout from the rooftop, it's it's going to be on the best cancer movies of all time. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, it, it's going to be. It's going to be. And same goes for for cries and whispers. Even to even though a bit lesser effect, it's it's from Berryman, so it's also already canonized in the, the like the, the history of great cinema. It's also one of the more renowned Berrymans. So, also in that case, like it, it already has a legacy. When it comes to... So, the real question here is wit and tick. And for those two films, unfortunately, I don't see that they do have a legacy. The, the wit 
faces the problem that it's made for TV movie. Like no matter that it's it's HBO movie, but and unfortunately I do feel that it's like simply the fact that it's made for TV kinda dooms it into obscurity, unfortunately. And Tick, well, just straight up, no, no, it's it's the the film is it's Netflix content, and it's going to be buried under Netflix content. That's going to be its legacy. It's Netflix content. So. No, and and for these four films, I I do feel that Tick is the one that necessarily doesn't even like deserve a legacy. It's not a bad film. It's not a bad film, but it's very much just an okay documentary. That it is. Yeah, Ikiru, Ikiru and Cries and Whispers, just what like you said it. Wit and Tick, Wit is on the top list somewhere as one of the best cancer movies as well and it's really highly rated uh, for some reason i can see why i just don't necessarily agree with everything but legacy what is what is a legacy this is kind of a silly question in a way because what, what kind of legacy are we talking about a legacy in you know fuck cancer groups online yeah Sure, there's gonna be a legacy on a wider scale worldwide. I don't know this, who goes around watching cancer movies apart from the Flick Lab and some cancer survivors and you know people who are in, interested in medical stuff. And there seems to be some interest in cancer in 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 what I can gather. In the the ladies seem to gravitate more towards cancer movies than than men for some reason. That's my might be my truncated frame, but. That's what I feel. So legacy, no, no. Yeah, well, you know, men are in relationships, so the death sentence is already given. <laughs> but uh, delightfully put the films in order of preference. Well, I'm, I'm gonna start out with a shocker. My number one is actually gonna be wit. Oh, not the dark comedy. No, not the dark comedy. And not, not, the, not Berryman either. I'm gonna pay, you know, go on and and put HBO direct to TV movie as as my number one and number two place. It's going to be a tie between Cries and Whispers and Ikiru. Can't really decide between the two two which one would be better. They are both magnificent movies. And then in in the last place, well, Tick. Hmm. Just gonna go more with my <laughs> with my gut. That's a great, great analogy, uh, unintended one. But Ikiru first, then wit, because, like you said, I I think it's a well-made movie still, and brings the point home about the dangerous, treacherous waters of this goddamn disease. And Tig. Tig, I would probably put as the third one, even as rotten as, as, as I may be, because of the simple fact that I think Cries and Whispers is just too goddamn chaotic. It jumps from the whole, you know, cancer aspect to the bickering of the family aspect. Then uh, it deals with weird themes that it doesn't seem to drive anywhere. It has ghosts, it has 
drama with the doctor. It's essentially <laughs> that, that's a dark comedy, man. If you're looking for so, and some something that goes unintentionally there for sure, and, and just no. But complete the sentence piece, please. You really know you're watching cancer cinema when you really know you have a stage for cancer when film podcasting starts to look like a, a viable career. And in the in the same veins. When you feel you're a podcast host, feeling like a deer in the headlights, awaiting the imminent car crash. <laughs> Certainly after this goes online. Or not. Or not, you know. Did you like the films, you <laughs> monster? Well, a joint answer to all of them, yes. Okay, joint answer to all of them, no, not really. You monster. No. <laughs> yeah, you, you can be burned at the stake at some place. We we had Pakinakikira Kurosawa on the list here, man. Yeah. But, like, for, forget that the you know the cancer diagnosis. That thing is a death sentence. There's a film buff crowd of elitist snobs somewhere, and they are going to get you eventually, man. <laughs> just just committed the unforgivable sin. Yeah, I usually love. Kurosawa, and it's a bit of a hyperbole. Yeah, yeah, I do like, I do like Ikiru. The rest, though, no, no, thank you. And ka, ka, Christ, man, you are not not only providing the the wood, you are also also providing the nails and the hammers for your own crucifix. We had Berryman on the list here. Fuck Berryman. <laughs> <laughs> We we also also had Mike Nichols, who who has made, for example, The Graduate and other like American classics, cinema classics here. Yeah, I do admit that I have a problem with Berryman in the sense that I haven't watched really any Berryman as far as I can I can remember. So we could make a whole episode about Berryman, so you can educate me all about. Barryman and his greatness. <laughs> you know, there's some international cinema I also haven't seen. <laughs> <laughs> we we, we can we, if yeah. we ever ever do a like like a very bad episode, we can have a have a prestigious film critic guest for that episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> you two can go on. <laughs> But I guess the more interesting question here is, would you watch these films again? Well, yes. All of them, except Tick. That's one-time watch. Okay. I would have gone to say that The Wit is definitely a one-time watch because of its heavy story. Albeit, yeah, good filmmaking. I wouldn't go out of my way to watch any of these ever again. Perhaps because of the subject, perhaps because, you know, I think take serious serious matter in the documentary, certainly yes. I don't think there was anything that special, though, that it deserves a second watch necessarily. Though, really, nice idea, nice idea. And, you know, <laughs> feels horrible to say these things sometimes. Somebody has cancer and makes a documentary about it. And it's an interesting subject matter as well. You, know, you have cancer and you're... Uh, you're a comedian. But I think also that 
documentary had a certain share of its issues, it doesn't really have an ending, so to speak. Where did her career go afterwards? Or was it all about the cancer? Well, there actually is an answer to that question. You just would have to check out more Netflix. I do know for the fact that Netflix does have the live recordings of, of her two later gigs. And like I tick the documentary and the, and those those two recordings of the gigs. They, they are on Netflix currently. That's where I also checked out Tick in the first place. And I was considering very hardly if I should also check out those gig recordings in order to see what goes on with Tick Notaro career-wise today. They're both recorded after after the documentary's time frame, so they would provide the answer to your question. Absolutely, yeah. Like, what is she doing today? Is she still doing cancer jokes, or what is she doing? But I, at the end of the day, decided not to check those, those gigs out simply because I wanted to to come in the, the, today's episode talking about the documentary and the no- documentary's narrative alone. I didn't want to contaminate it with, you know, afterwards information and getting the picture of what Tignotaro is today outside of the, the documentary's narrative. But if you are curious, if if you want your question answered, what goes on with her today, you know... Head out to Netflix. Two mm-hmm. live show gigs. There, you know, perhaps I too will check them out later on. But yeah. you know, the, the answer is is reachable. Yeah, it's there. It's not within the context of the doc, though. No, nope. Dear listener, would you recommend Insidious, malignant cancer tumor movies? Come and comment on our Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram pages. To all your heart's content. And uh, any closing thoughts on cancer? Don't pray. Everybody needs to have a hobby. <laughs> Including this podcast. And that's a, that's a great <laughs> bridge. Because how about some more body count and suffering in the form of Winter War, the movie? Next up. Oh, until then. Okay, now so is it the yes. scene? Yeah.